Hey there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of our Story Story Night family, where you hear bleep-worthy stories as we look over that white picket fence to consider the American dreams. Our unblushing theme this month is independence. Our show intermixes curated stories with a community story slam. Support our podcast and set off some fireworks by texting the code STORYPOD to 44321. I'm Artistic Director Jody Eichelberger. Now I'm sending you off on your own with our late night host, Beth Norton, and featured storytellers Nate Ford and Katie Lotz. Time to break free. It's Late Night Stories. Clap if it is your first time to Story Story Night. Cool. Okay, clap if you are a story subscriber. Clap if you come to every show, but you're still not a story subscriber. (laughs) Thank you for your support, everybody. We really appreciate you being here. The theme for the summer is the American dreams. Last month, we talked about marriage. It was contentious, as marriage often is. And this uh, this month, we are um, telling stories on the theme of independence. So if this is your first time to Story Story Night, how this show works is uh, we have intermixed what we call featured storytellers. These are people who have prepared longer stories that have worked with us to craft their set. Um, They are just people from the community, so um, that is always open. We're always looking for more um, story listeners to come and tell their stories, and I have some cards if you're interested in that after the show. Intermixed is also a slammer portion. Um, So anybody here tonight, and we hope you know, many of you do, um, can write their name on a ticket over at our Slammer booth. See, um, you see Stacy waving her hand, Valerie raising her hand. <laughs> um, and um, we will pull those at random throughout the show and you can tell your five minute story on the theme of independence. Um, all, all stories tonight are personal, they are true, um, and they are told from your perspective. That is what we are going for tonight. Um, when the five minutes ends on your story, I will kind of slowly come up to, to stage, um, and then when six minutes comes up, I will um, cut you off, and I promise not to use that wasp spray that we have <laughs> down there. If you are really allergic to bees, maybe skip tonight, because <laughs> we have a few... Um, who have taken up residence, although they seem to be fine right now. So just a word of warning on that. What else? Ready to get this evening started? Yes? Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that hot clap. Yes. (laughs) Too busy fanning myself to clap. Um, So I am Beth Norton. I'm the host and director of Story Story Late Night. And um, I have the pleasure of opening this up tonight to tell you your first story. I was having a conversation with a coworker of mine just before this long holiday weekend. And we were having the basic, you know, what are you gonna do this weekend? And although both of us are old millennials, we are definitely in different places in our life. She is a new mom and I am holding strong with two cats. And um, I asked her, what are your plans this weekend? And she was like, nothing. And uh, she's like, what are your plans? And I was like, I'm going backpacking by myself. (laughs) In the sawtooth. And she was like, ugh. She was like, that sounds great. 
Um, she's like, oh, where are you going? I was like, I'm going out of Grand Jean. She's like, oh, the milkshakes at Sawtooth Lodge. Uh, and uh, was having that full like nostalgic reaction. And um, she was like, think of me while you're out there. Think of us like with kids while you're out there, like um, exercising your freedom. And I was like, I, I definitely will, as long as you think of me when you have somebody to take care of you when you're old. And <laughs> That was partly a joke, but it's, it's true. It's something I think about. Um, I, you know, I have a, a very complicated relationship with independence. This theme was difficult. It was difficult for me to put the story together on this because it, it is such a big thing to try to break down. It's a big thing to like explore and reflect on this relationship that you have with something like an American dream, like independence, which is often seen as something that is like very positive. My experience with independence felt less like um, you know, an asset and more like a boon uh, or a rut that I've been stuck in for a long time. The first time I remember feeling like I was independent or that I was on my own, I was seven years old and my social worker had picked me up from my aunt and uncle's house that was abusive, dropped me off in a temporary home for kids and left for a few days. And no familiar faces, nothing around. I remember thinking, I am totally on my own. Um, the only thing I remember about that place were the Cheez-Its. They had <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> I lived on them. It was familiar. The second time I remember feeling really independent was when I was um, unwillfully independent, I should say, was when I was 17. I had just graduated high school. Uh, my foster parents had moved us from the uh, west coast of California to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And after a major disagreement, after a year of disagreements, um, they threw a box of trash bags at me and said, get your stuff out, and kicked me out and said, you're not a part of our family anymore. That was my entry into adulthood. After that, I was lucky enough, I had um, some biological family in California and an aunt who had stuck with me, so she helped me with that transition. She helped me apply for college and get a driver's license and co-sign on an apartment and all that kind of stuff that you need, even though you're legally an adult. You need a lot of help. And I got through college and um, stayed there a couple years after college, and then I found out some um, terrible family news and I couldn't stay so I moved back across the country and changed my name to Lilybeth and um, started working in outdoor education where I actually found that my independence was an asset um, for the first time. Um, being outdoors gave me a sense of um, belonging that I hadn't felt before. Like it was okay to be alone out there. Um, after a few years working seasonally, I settled in Vermont because why not? <laughs> I didn't have anywhere else to go. I had a friend who lived there. He was driving on his way and I was like, sure, I'll go. Um, so I settled in Vermont and I would end up being there for about five years, most of them pretty alone um, and carless um, and most, mostly winter. It was definitely difficult. Um, and then just kind of like year four, I finally found my footing, you know, like I got a car that I really wanted. It was a Mazda 3, a stick shift. It was, um, I called her wifey. Um, um, I had that freedom. I had my own place. I had a good job that, um, 
that uh, paid the bills and uh, was I'd found stand-up comedy and I was doing hot yoga like three times a week so I was like crushing it right and um, just approaching my prime just approaching 30 and that's when we'll call him R comes along um, as they do as soon as you're like hitting your groove they're like oh look I want some of that and uh, and he moved on in, and I was definitely overtaken by um, this man who was generous and loving, you know, and also affluent. Um, <laughs> I, I had spent, <laughs> yes, thank you, got the gold digger section over here. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> You know, like I had spent four years like wheeling my clothes to the laundromat in a suitcase, like trying to play it off like I had a plane to catch. And, um, and like just going downtown to smell the smells of the restaurant because I couldn't afford to eat there, um, to being like taken out to nice dinners, like at the mere mention of a canoe, he bought one. Um, and I was like, I think I'm in love with you. And that's should have been my first clue, I think. I think that's how I said it too. Um, and you think that should have been a clue, but I think I love you. And I think what I loved was how much he loved me and, um, and how much he um, showed that he could take care of me, that he could provide for me. I had never felt that before in my life. And um, he was also originally from Idaho. And he talked incessantly about Idaho. He uh, was a fly fisherman, and um, his family had lived here for five generations, um, and he was all the things Idaho. Um, even like that quirky, um, yeah, that quirkiness that you find here. That's so special. Um, <laughs> and um, within a year of our relationship, um, I, we decided that we were gonna move to Idaho. and. We dramatically underestimated how much our own communities meant there, and we dramatically overestimated the strength of our relationship because, let me tell you, it was not a pleasant drive across the country. I, before we had really finalized the decision, I had had like a little voice come to my head like, mm, maybe this isn't the right thing. Like maybe I'm giving up too much for this idea of like a life somewhere else and a, and a dream. Um, and I even tried to talk to him at one point. I remember we were sitting on like a cement stoop and I found that little courage to like, you know, eke out like a, um, you know, maybe this isn't quite the time, but he was a fast mover, he was very decisive. When he made a decision, that was the end of it. We were moving forward with that decision. And it was like a, nope, um, we are, we're going on this, uh, we're doing this, it's done. Even though it wasn't, but for him it was done. And I was um, not strong enough to, to really listen to that voice and to think fully about things. And so we moved and it was difficult. It was difficult on our relationship. Um, the first year was okay, you know, he was coming back to a place he'd grown up in, where his family is, where he had a job, um, he didn't like his job, um, and he was disgruntled by all the changes, you know, in Boise, but, um, I was, <laughs> all the development, that used to be a hole in downtown, he was just like, that was a good thing, or, or something. Yeah, everybody misses the hole. Um, <laughs> It's just not a, a sexy euphemism. <laughs> yeah. So, like, as you can probably guess, it didn't, it didn't work out. Um, 
you know, slowly, as nice as it was to be provided for, and he really provided for me, he, he followed through on that promise. He took care of me. I never felt like he would not take care of me. Um, but I slowly lost my autonomy, and I slowly lost any sense of independence. I didn't have a say in where we lived. We moved a couple more times, and again, I got louder. Like, I don't think this is the right decision. I don't want to do this. But again, he pushed through that. It, it, it even went into our activities. Like, we had this hot spring that I loved to go to and um, had this special relationship with. And one year we went, and the night before we got to the hot spring, there, there was this torrential hailstorm that blew the whole thing out, filled it with mud, washed the cold tub down, washed all the piping out. And I remember being devastated and just wanting to start digging it out, just wanting to start fixing it. And he was like, no, we're here to fish. Um, so fish we did. Um, and I just remember sitting in the front of the boat just being, feeling so sunk inside. And so like what I wanted didn't matter. And um, at the end of that trip, we went back and there had been boats going over there um, to, to check it out. We went back at the end of the trip and people had dug it all out. They had put the tub back in. They had, um, you know, put the piping back in and it was on its, on its way to men. And I was like, oh, I wanted to be a part of that effort. You know, those were the things that were important to me. And I felt like those things were being ignored. The breaking point for me was around the holidays. And now I just feel like I'm bitching about my relationship. <laughs> just, you guys are going to listen to me. No. <laughs> um, it was the holidays. And if you were at the December holiday show, you might have a little bit of insight on why that time is tough for me. But um, you know, we would go to his family's. They have like a beautiful retirement cabin in McCall, and it's just so lovely on the surface, but I don't come from that. And so inside, it was just constantly stressful um, for me to try to fit into that, to, to try to feel like I, I would belong, and I was incredibly triggered around the holidays. And I told him that, and I told him, I was like, just can we just like one time, can we just go somewhere warm, like near the ocean, just like you and me, you know? I said like, if, if he said, no, we can't. It would break my mom's heart not to spend a holiday with her. And I mean, we spent every fucking holiday with her. Like, it was Mother's Day, Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas. And I was like, well, you know, if, if I had a family of my own, we'd be splitting holidays. We'd be going there. And he said, yeah, but you don't. And so it's not worth it. And that was my breaking point. <laughs> And even though I was like, you know, at that point I had been like two years in a state of dependence, um, terrified to go out on, on my own again and knowing if I could make it, I knew I had to go. And like I said, he made good on his word. Like we lived together for four months uh, while I looked for a place I could afford. This was in 2019, it was difficult then. Um, on my nonprofit salary and, um, he, uh, his parents had given us a Jetta. They just had an extra. And so I got to take the Jetta, which is now giving me all sorts of problems. Never buy a German car. I would have never bought this car. Um, I had to sell wifey. That was another thing I gave up. You can see the pattern there. Um, I, um, he uh, offered me part of his bonus the year we broke up, after we broke up, to help me get through. He insisted that, um, that what we had gone through in our relationship had taught him things that made him better in the working environment and that he, owed, he thought he owed that to me. And I didn't, my sense of independence had kicked back in and I was like, no, I'm not doing that, but you can pay for grad school. So he put me <laughs> through grad school. I got an education out of the deal. 
go Broncos. And, <laughs> um, and he made good on the promise of like, you know, he always built up the outdoors to me here. And um, this is like my second, no, third, third, this was my third solo trip in the Idaho back country. And when I went out um, this time, I felt um, like I, it smelled like home um, in a way that I hadn't felt before. And I felt no fear. I felt no longing for um, anybody else's company. Um, I felt fully joyful um, being with myself. And I know that like independence isn't the dream, um, but I think being good with myself in independence is a good place to start. And I am holding out hope for the dream that one day I will find interdependence and partnership. So thank you. And if you have a breakup story, you can tell <laughs> your name in the slammer. Can we get the slammer basket up? We are going to have our first slammer of the evening. I know there's at least one name in there. Should be good. <laughs> Was that the wrong song to sing? Is it just the one? Oh, it's fine. It's just the one? Cool. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's join me in welcoming our first slammer of the evening, Sky. That was, I wish I was further back to have a longer lead up. That was, thank you. Independence. It was 2006. And I signed up for a year abroad in Chile. And I left my family, my younger sister, my older brother. And I was down in Valparaiso for entirely three days until it dawned on me, maybe I should call my parents. <laughs> and at the time, it was 720 pesos to the dollar. And I went to one of those long distance calling booths. And I was like, you know, who would answer the phone? I called my dad. and I. Dialed up my dad's office number, second ring. This is Chuck. It's like, hey, dad. He goes, hey, Skyler. How you doing? And I said, I'm good, dad. He goes, how's the weather? And I said, well, it's kind of hot. And he goes, how much is this phone call costing you? And I said, well, dad, it's about, it's about 60 pesos a minute. And he goes, Jesus Christ, I'll tell your mother you said hello. And he hangs up the phone. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like, all right, all right. Now, I called my parents. Now, with that independence, I was good. And I called them up four months later. <laughs> because I had gotten into a street fight in the evening. And during that fight, someone had smashed my foot with a rock. And being in a scary Pinochet-styled truck and being carried to a holding cell and talking ourselves out of that and the following day going to the hospital and I called my mom on Mother's Day I said hey mom you know that credit card for emergencies well I'm gonna run it it's gonna be about 400 and 400 500 dollars US and the study abroad insurance will catch up and she's like oh my god what 
I was like, it's cool, foot's a little busted up. And now she was in tears, which was heartfelt. Now, I go in to this surgery, and for some reason, they put me in this paper gown, and I'm laying there, and I was like, this is so far from any vital organ. And they have me hooked up to, <laughs> and, they have, and they have me hooked up to a, uh, the monitoring machine, make sure my heart beat and so forth. And they put in the numbing shots, and there's two nurses, and the physician is stitching up. And I have still some funky toes from this. And I looked up, and there was blood splatters just from the ceiling. I was like, oh my God. And my heart rate just spikes and the nurse comes over and she's like, are you okay? And I was like, well, you know, just don't look up. <laughs> no. And with it, I put a real big hitch in my get along. They gave me a medical cane and I go back to this host family and the host family was a pension, so it was 10 students. It was kind of like this mini frat house scenario. And I realized this independence, what I wanted and what I seeked, well, I felt it. I don't have family here. And I'm finally, for the first time, hanging out in my small room. And I am fumbling around in this backpack that I'd yet to really dig through. And I'm looking through because I hadn't refilled my pencils, the lead, and my younger sister, had left a note right there in where I kept my pencil lead. And I opened up that packet, and there was this letter from my younger sister. And I read it, and I absolutely had tears. Because I didn't realize, and it took me to go so far away, that I had a sister who loved me. And at that moment, um, I wish I wasn't there and took some guts to come back and that ability to, you know, get my feet back and all that and all the shenanigans that led up. But to come back and finally come home and sit down with my sister who had grown and this year, and to actually have a conversation with her was just this full circle of like the alchemist. I had to go as far away as possible to know that my treasure was at home. There you go, that's a story. Thank you, Sky. Appreciate that. Um, do we have another ticket in our slammer? No more tickets? Okay. Let's, uh, that's the show, you guys. Uh, have a great night. No. I also forgot to mention two things. One, since the theme of tonight is independence, um, we have these little drink tokens, which we normally only give to the, to the uh, featured storytellers. But these say freedom on it. Jody has a good story of why they say freedom. I think they were cheaper if we, got the, if we got the standard print on the other side. So they say story, story night on one side, and they say freedom on the other side. 
Um, and if you are a slammer whose name is John, you're gonna get one of these. And you can keep it as a souvenir. Um, if you are a hoarder or like me, just like t keep everything with you so you can remember it. Or um, you can cash in at the bar for a drink. So yeah, okay. Not as excited about that as I had hoped. But. <laughs> um, also, we do have uh, the black puppet sheep in the house. Clap if you remember the black sheep. Okay. Cool, so we do have the Story Story Late Night, Black, I think Black Sheep number two, I think is the name. <laughs> Something, yeah, whatever. Um, in the house, so if you have a story but you're like a little uh, too shy to get up here and to tell it while looking at all of, all of these people's faces, um, you, we have a, a, a cordless mic so you can go hide behind the building while Jody puppet masters uh, Black Sheep. So just be sure to mention that to our, um, to our volunteers at the Story Slammer booth, if that's what you're into. But we are going to kick off the second half with our second featured storyteller. He did leave his guitar at home, unfortunately. Please join me in welcoming Nate Ford. Perfect. I uh, left my mom's place before I got here, and my mom goes, where are you going? I go, I'm going to jail. <laughs> that's, that's where I'm going. Uh, I'm Nate Ford. Uh, I've been a stand-up comic for 24 years. Uh, not bragging. <laughs> uh, it hasn't been a, a limousine and jewel story. Uh, a lot of struggles within this one. Uh, when I was young, uh, I wasn't into sports. And my parents and I quickly discovered that after my first and only soccer game. As other kids were, you know, kicking the ball or attempting to do that, I'm over trying to catch a butterfly. They go, okay, maybe this is not for you. So mom put me in a Sunshine Generations. I don't know if you remember that back in the day, uh, where I had to wear white pants, a yellow shirt, and white gloves, and a kid singing and dancing for the masses here in Boise, Idaho. It was... It was stupid. Uh, <laughs> uh, they went, you know, through school and didn't really fit in, didn't really belong. And uh, I found theater in high school, junior high, in high school and community theater. I thought this was it. Uh, but I'm working with other people, you know. I, I don't feel I belong still. And then a friend of mine said, hey, I did the Funny Bone open mic. You should try it. I go. Hells yeah, <laughs> I can do this, you know? I thought I had five minutes of gold, right? And I invited everybody, all my friends, my coworkers, my boss even showed up, and it was two, mu two minutes of garbage. <laughs> like, I was, it was horrible, I was sweating. <laughs> but in the back of my head, I go, how can I make this better? I knew I was hooked. Comedy hooked me like no other thing did. I go, ah, I belong with comedy. That's what I, yeah. So I. Decided, you know what, I'm doing this. This is what I'm gonna do. And Boise, not a lot of opportunities in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> not the comedy mecca that we think it is. <laughs> so I packed up two suitcases and I moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Why not? <laughs> Let's go to colder weather. Let's do that, maybe this will help out, you know? 
And, uh, and that's where I got most of my start, uh, doing road work and all that sort of stuff. I thought, you know what? I'm going to make myself go to New York. Yeah, New York. I packed up a car with a friend of mine. We're heading to New York. We had car troubles in Illinois. So we stayed there for about a year. <laughs> yeah. Never made it to New York. But I'm still willing to follow this passion of stand-up comedy, right? And then my dad said, hey, you know what? You have an aunt that lives in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Hey, that's better than New York, I think, right? Yeah. So I lived in Wisconsin, and this is where I become a full-time stand-up comic. Uh, I traveled the country, uh, even performed in Australia and Scotland, and I did a comedy contest in Oshkosh, Wisconsin one night in 2011. And it was a late night. I won the competition, by the way. And I'm driving home to where I was living in at the time, Nina, Wisconsin. And I fell asleep at the wheel. And there was a filled, 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 path to trees, filled, 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 filled. And my truck decided to go into the patch of trees. <laughs> yeah. Turn it into a ball. Uh, but the doctor said I was very lucky because I fell asleep. And so I went with the accident, you know. But I, uh, I shattered my left hip. The ball of the hip went through the hip. And my left foot went like this. Yeah, dude. Uh, after the first surgery, I developed ileus. I don't know if you know any doctors in the house, but that's when your intestines stop working. And so everything just builds up in your stomach until it explodes. So for a week in the hospital, I had a tube through my nose, into my stomach, pumping it out. I lost a bunch of weight in the hospital, by the way. That's, that's the shining <laughs> light in that. And I was in the hospital for about two and a half months. And I get out of the hospital, found out that I'm allergic to sulfa, uh, which is in some antibiotics, developed Steven Johnson syndrome. It's a rare disease where your skin starts to burn off until you're dead. And you have 24 hours to figure it out. Don't worry, guys. I figured it out. <laughs> I'm here right now. And so I went back to the hospital for another month to, to get it out. And so now I'm stuck in a wheelchair in Wisconsin where my family all lives in Idaho. Uh, I was depressed. I was an alcoholic. Uh, I didn't know if I was going to do stand-up or not. Uh, developed an Oxycontin addiction. And just, it was, it was a bad time in my life. Like, I didn't know, like, I, I, I stopped doing stand-up full-time. It was over. The, the dream was over. The American dream for me was over. Uh, I didn't take until a physical therapist. I forgot her name, but for lack of better words, she was a Nazi. She had a German accent, and she just pounded everything into me. Like, she lit a fire under my ass. Like, just to get up out of the wheelchair, walk, and live life. It took somebody like that to do that. And so I ended up starting to do comedy again, but in a wheelchair. And I learned to walk on my leg again. And uh, started hitting the road with a friend of mine, going coast to coast, playing in dive bars and theaters and everything in between, including a house party in, uh, in Montana. So much fun, you know? I'll do any gig, trust me. Like, if you want to hire me for a gig, hire for me a gig. I'll do your backyard, I don't care. <laughs> but 
But uh, so I get a call from my mom after everything was, you know, out in the clear and whatnot. And uh, my stepdad lost his job at Micron. They, they fired him and they struggling financially. My brother and sister couldn't help at the time and I couldn't pay my rent and help with them. So in 2019, I moved back here to Boise, Idaho. Now, not ending my career, you know, just a step back, just a little step back. I have connections in Washington and California. I could still do it and help my mom and stepdad. Then 2020 came around. Yeah, everything shut down. Everything shut down. My whole existence that I knew was over again. Like, how do we, because it was unknown. The pandemic was an unknown thing. I didn't know if it was going to end or start again or whatever. And it, I was forced to get a real job. How do you guys do that? <laughs> I, for 15 years, I didn't have a job. And I had to get a job at a gas station. That's the only thing that was hiring. It's so hard. Like, like before, when I got my first job at Albertsons back in the day, I just filled out an application and they did the interview right there on the spot. Now you gotta go through computers and paperwork and interview upon interview and like, where, what have you been doing for 15 years? I've been doing stand-up comedy. Are you famous? No, have you worked with it? Who's, who's coming here? Is Seinfeld working here? So I got a job, the gas station, comedy is non-existent, hated my life, just, it was, eh. And I was eating unhealthy food because I was working overnight at the gas station, not getting any sleep. I was gaining weight. I was just dying little by little by little inside. And then my hope of my American dream vanished yet once again. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I never learned to trade. You know, I don't know how to build this stage. I don't know how these electricities work. I know how to tell a dick joke in Montana. That's what I know. You know, that's, I'm good at that. This is the only thing I know what to do. And whatever out there said, nope, not going to do it. And then a friend of mine got a job at the gas station, also a comic. And uh, so we started writing jokes at the gas station. Like, at least, you know, getting these creative juices flowing, at least... I'll have something to bring if, if the doors open again, uh, the stand-up comedy. And then, then the customers got to me. Because not the best people come to the gas station at 3 in the morning. <laughs> I don't know if you know that or not. <laughs> they're just, they're not you guys, <laughs> all right? You guys look like you're put together and uh, you don't have a meth addiction and... You probably live in a house, you know? And like, I started, I started getting angry. That's, I mean, I've always been a nice guy. I've always been, look at me, I'm a cherub. Look at this, you know? But I became angry, I became hateful. I hated everything. I started yelling at the customers. And like, I remember bo my boss comes in almost every morning. Hey, who tell this customer to F off? It was probably me, it was me, you know? Just like, I, it, I wasn't myself, you know? And then all of a sudden, this booker out of New York said, you know what? I'm gonna do some brewery tours during the pandemic. 
And, you know, a lot of people are afraid to leave their house. But I go, you know what? I need to leave. I need to go. I need to go out there. Otherwise, I'm going to murder somebody, and she's going to sing a song about me. <laughs> I mean, that would be cool if you did, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> and, so, and, and so it just, it just re rekindled the fire again. I went all over the country with this dude. Uh, I went from the Austin to Denver where everything was in lockdown. We had to do outdoor shows. And then I performed in South Dakota where, what pandemic? <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah, walked into a gas station like, what are you wearing that for? Like, <laughs> I'm probably gonna keep this on now. Thank you. Yeah, I'm probably gonna mask. I'm talking about masks and whatnot. And I go, maybe, Maybe there is hope. Maybe, maybe, maybe my American dream can, can continue, you know? And he gave me that hope. And that's all we need is just hope, a little, little, little piece of light to let you know. And throughout all my experiences in life, for the last 24 years, I have gone coast to coast. Uh, I've gone overseas. I've been in a movie locally that's winning awards, and for me, that's, that's my freedom. That's my independence, to, to do what I ex extremely love to do. Comedy is my passion, and I'll do it till the day I die. I think, you know what, I, there's no health insurance in comedy, so <laughs> I will probably die on stage at one point in time. It's inevitable, you know, but that's, that's my story, that's my story of independence, that, that even through all these struggles and whatnot, I'm still able to, to find that light and still be able to do it, and uh, thank you for your time. Nate Ford. Nate Ford, you might be the only person who credits their life to a Nazi. <laughs> All right, um, let's do another slammer, yeah? yeah? All right, can we get the slammer basket up here? Valerie. Coming. <laughs> Coming, like I asked for dinner or something, that's funny. <laughs> dinner, coming. Ding dong. Thank you. Promise I didn't look. Oh, well, please join me in welcoming Sonia. <laughs> Sonia, make sure you come fill out the release form afterward, okay? Okay, because I'll probably forget to tell you. Thank you. That's great. Yeah, thank you. So I wanted to deliver on something about a breakup. I, so in a lot of job interviews, I've been asked if I can be assertive. And as you do in a job interview, I lie and say, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but my track record isn't great. <laughs> uh, I was in a relationship for a lot of my 20s that had really clear signs that it wasn't going to work out. Uh, there was the lying about his being in school, and it turns out he was just playing Call of Duty for most of the time. 
but probably the most clear sign was when he cheated on me with a person who had been our youth pastor in high school. <laughs> uh, and it, I would love to say that I ended things in a like fiery storm like you see in the movies right when I found out, <laughs> but it took me two years of just thinking about it every day to actually say something to him. And it wasn't even the first time. The first time I kind of brought it up and uh, he cried and said he didn't know what he would do without me. Uh, and then the second time I got a little bit more sure. And finally the third time I ended things. and. It felt so good because I'd been thinking about this for two years, almost every day. Uh, and finally, I had this freedom from this everything that was occupying my brain. And I was like, well, what I really want to do is something that I've never done because I've been in this relationships for so much of this time. And I want to have a one night stand. <laughs> So that summer after the breakup, I went about pursuing that goal. Uh, <laughs> and when I have a goal in mind, I am pretty focused. <laughs> I, I learned in this process uh, to have one night stand, you, a lot of times, uh, you just ask for it. <laughs> So I did, uh, first at my sister's college graduation uh, party <laughs> uh, with her, God, I think it was her roommate's brother. Um, and uh, that was, it was fun. Um, and then I was going to my college reunion and I was also living with my parents at this time. Like, I'd, I'd left uh, Portland. I was living, like, pretty independently there, living on my own, and had a job, and I moved back to be closer to home and moved in with my parents for a while while I figured out where I was going to live. Uh, but I was going back to my college reunion in Portland, and I <laughs> was like, cool, this is going to be another chance to practice this. <laughs> And I kind of saw at the reunion someone that I'd had a crush on in college, but never acted on. And I was like, ooh, okay, this is, this is my chance. And then his girlfriend walked up, so okay, not, not this one. Um, but then I started talking to someone else who I hadn't really known in college, but had thought he was cute from afar. And we got to talking and hit things off and eventually as the night wore on I said uh, let's go to South Campus which sounds like a euphemism but it actually is the South Campus of like the Masters College. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's also where I tried salvia for the first time in college so like things did happen there um, but it was there that I <laughs> I, I really felt like I learned how to be assertive. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
Wow. So I know Sonia, and I'm like so crazy, awesomely surprised by one night stands and Salvia. Was everybody else just like, oh yeah, Salvia? I remember that one time. That thing. It was the sweetest thing. <laughs> it is the sweetest thing. <laughs> um, okay, we'll talk about Salvia later. Okay. <laughs> the South Campus. Oh, okay. Anybody else gonna use South Campus from now on in their relationship? Yes, awesome, so am I. All right, um, coming up to the stage next is your final featured storyteller of the evening. Uh, we are very lucky to have her. Please welcome to the stage, Katie Lotz. Hi, everyone. Um, so I'm gonna keep going with the theme of women getting up here talking about independence and talking about breakups. So, <laughs> not to generalize on gender roles, but in the tracks. So, I think my favorite type of like unsolicited advice is the type of wisdom that people give you when you're going through a breakup. You know, like I feel like everyone has their hot take on whether the best way to get over someone is to get under someone else. <laughs> or they have like a specific philosophy on if you should block your ex and if so for how long, you know. And I just, I've always um, really appreciated those words of wisdom, but I think that if I could go back in time and give advice to any of my previous heartbroken selves, I would go find my 19-year-old self who was going through a really specific type of heartbreak. And I don't think I would tell her anything about independence because she had some pretty clear thoughts on what that meant to her. Um, I would give her advice on how to park safely and legally. <laughs> she was really bad at that. <laughs> That's what I'm gonna explain to you all today. So when I was 19, I was going through a heartbreak, as I explained, and it was during the holiday season, which didn't make it any easier. Um, and during this period of time, I was helping out a classmate on a short film that they were directing. And I was doing art department, so think like set design, things like that. But this was like a low-budget film, like a, like a no-budget film. So I basically packed up a bunch of stuff from my apartment, and I would bring it over to their apartment to decorate the set. So I would arrive every day with like three tote bags and a duffel bag full of like throw pillows and blankets. And I had like this flimsy tension rod that I was using to hang curtains, posters, stuff like that. I looked like, I looked like a runaway hoarder. It was a mess. And I was leaving one night and I was supposed to be catching a flight to go visit family for the holidays at 8 a.m. the next morning. And our shoot had run long as they often do. So. I was feeling a little bit frazzled as I was leaving, carrying all this stuff at like 11 p.m. And I'm walking back to my car, making like a mental checklist of all the stuff I need to do when I get home. And number one is pack. Because why would I do that anytime besides the night before? And um, I got a little, bit, a little bit sidetracked making this like checklist as I'm walking. And I looked up all of a sudden and I was in the middle of Ann Morrison Park. I had like overshot where I had parked my car. So I turn around and I backtrack. And as I'm approaching the side street that I had left my car on, I realize that it's freezing outside, it's December, it's cold, I'm carrying so many of my earthly possessions, and my car has most certainly been towed. I really thought that the side street I had parked on was like not technically a part of the park, I thought I was in the clear, 
but I was not. And there was no sign anywhere that explained to me like what towing company had my car or what number to call. So in like just such a moment of defeat, I like put all my stuff on the curb and sat down and I Googled, what do you do when your car gets towed? <laughs> Which was like such a personal low. <laughs> And the internet told me to call 911, which felt so dramatic. I was like, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> so instead I called the non-emergency number and I am more responsible than the story might lead you to believe because I did have my like license plate number and information in my notes app. So this word of advice. Um, so I was able to give the operator who answered my call my information and she was able to very cheerfully and very kindly and very enthusiastically confirm for me that my car had in fact been towed like two hours previously. And she annoyed the bejesus out of me because I was so mad and I really wanted someone else to be mad with me. Um, but instead she was just very kind and very helpful and she assured me not to worry. The tow yard was going to open at 8 a.m. the next morning and I could get my car back. Now, for those of you who have really great listening comprehension skills, you'll remember that I'm supposed to be on a flight to go visit my family at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. And I'm gonna be gone for like a week and a half, so leaving my car really is not an option. But I was going through a really hard time and I wanted to be with my loved ones for the holidays. And I'm explaining this out loud to the woman on the phone and she's telling me like, you're just SOL, you know, there's nobody at the tow lot, even if you can find a way to get there at 11 p.m., there's no one there to get you your car back. And just as I was losing all hope, I saw a beam of light from across the park. And by that I mean I saw a literal light coming from a tow truck that was towing another car. <laughs> and I was like, I think I'm gonna ask this guy if he can help me out. And the kind woman on the other end of the phone says, um, under no circumstances would I advise you to approach a stranger in the dark park and ask for help. <laughs> and I just hate disappointing people and I didn't wanna tell her that I was not gonna follow her advice, so I hung up. And I gathered all my courage and gathered all my bags. And as I started walking towards this tow truck in the dark, I was like, man, this is gonna be such a mediocre episode of Dateline. <laughs> when I inevitably get murdered in like 25 minutes, but say la vie, here we go. Um, <laughs> so I finally get to this tow truck and he's in the midst of towing another vehicle, right? And tow trucks are loud. And the, the smart part of my brain is trying to keep a safe distance from this man. So I'm trying to get his attention and I'm saying hi and excuse me, but he's not turning around. So I have to get much closer. So I'm like two feet away from this guy, all but tapping him on the shoulder. And this poor man looks up at me and I scare the living daylights out of him. <laughs> He jumps backward and like yells, which scares me, so I also jump backwards and yell. And then we're just two idiots jumping in the park, yelling in the dark, and like no one's getting anywhere. <laughs> and he was this big burly guy with like a scraggly beard, and he seemed really embarrassed that I had scared him. So he assured me that the reason he was so on edge is because his roommates had been watching a lot of ghost hunters late at night. <laughs> and I was like, cool, I have something to tell you. <laughs> And I explained to him the predicament that I was in. And he reiterated what the gal on the phone had told me, which is that there was no one at the tow yard to let me in. I really wasn't gonna be able to get my car until 8 a.m. the next morning. Um, and I just kind of kept looking at him and I clearly had nowhere to be. And he clearly had places to be. So finally he said, look, I'm going back to the tow yard at the end of the night. If you hop in with me, I'll take you to your car at the end of my shift. And this is the part of the story where people look at me like I'm really crazy or really stupid. <laughs> Which is valid because I am telling a story of how I very, very poorly handled a really inconvenient predicament that was entirely my fault. But let's keep in mind, I was 19 
I was going through a hard time. I think this makes sense with a bit of broader context. So let's zoom back. As I mentioned, I was going through a breakup. But this was a really weird breakup for me because it was a relationship that had happened largely in secret. It was my first queer relationship and neither my partner or I were out to our families yet. And so even though this was a relationship that was really formative to me and really important to me, when it ended, I found that I had really nobody to talk to about it. And I really didn't quite know what that meant for the trajectory of my life, basically. And when my partner had ended the relationship, it was so that she could date a guy who she worked with. And she basically very kindly explained to me that this was just easier. This was the more secure route. This was the safer route. This was what made more sense to her. And I think that the line of independence and loneliness is very, very fine because it was in this, this breakup, in this sudden isolation that I found myself in after this relationship ended that I realized that that wasn't the type of life that I wanted to live. And so on a micro level, maybe I was being reckless in 19, but on a macro level, when I was faced with this odd decision of how I was going to handle this, this really lonely and really frightening situation that I found myself in, I thought about the type of life that I wanted to live, and I realized that if I wanted to be myself, and if I wanted to be happy, and if I wanted to be independent, I was going to have to get very comfortable with being uncomfortable. I was from a very, very Catholic, very traditional, very nuclear family, and I didn't know how the structure of my life was going to look like after coming out, after embracing parts of myself that I had spent so long trying to suppress. But I knew that there was going to be a lot of instances down that road where I needed to be able to rely on only myself, and I needed to be able to handle situations not perfectly, but on my own. And so I got in the truck, and we started driving. And I had the best night with Willie. <laughs> Willie, the tow truck driver. He's from North Carolina. He's a gem. He doesn't have much family in Boise, but he loves to read. He likes to watch ghost hunters with his roommates late at night, even though it makes him nervous. When there's no cars left to tow in the tow yard, he listens to the police scanner, and he goes and he helps clean up accidents that happen along the side of the road. And as we drove along, and as I rode along with him that night, we stopped at like three different accidents, and he got out of the truck and talked with first responders and helped sweep up glass, and he would come up to my door every now and again and ask if I was okay. Not really in a sentimental way, but more in a gruff, obligatory, like, you good way, <laughs> and it was very kind. And his ringtone, I kid you not, is the theme song from Halloween. <laughs> so we did have some great banter about that. <laughs> and at the end of the night, he brought me back to the tow yard, he knocked a couple hundred dollars off of my towing fee, and he opened the gate and he wished me a good night. Yeah, and that's my story. Thank you, Katie. Oh, I wish Willie were here now. That was wonderful. Thank you. Um, okay, let's let's get another slammer up here. Yay, Valerie. Yay. Maha. Uh -huh. <laughs> Are you making fun of your own dress? Yes. <laughs> I love that. Ugh. <laughs> uh, Please join me in welcoming Pam Bond. It's my friend. Is this your first time doing this, Pam? 
This is not her first time. Pam, you've been lifting weights? Look at this. Wow. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, Beth. <laughs> um, so this isn't my first time. It's actually my second time, but the very first time was my very first time at Story Story Night when they used to do it at the Rose Room. And anybody gone long enough? It was at the Rose Room. Yeah. And that was back in the day when like the bucket was full of people doing slammers. And the friend who brought me said, oh, they'll never call your name. There's so many people in the bucket. And I was like, dang it. It's different tonight. But the funnest part of that was on my ticket, I put Bond, Pam Bond, and Jessica Holmes was the, <laughs> was the announcer. And she, I knew it was me because she giggles. She's like, huh, that's Bond, Pam Bond. I've never had anybody announce me that way. So I just wanted to make that happen. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so I, I've been uh, thinking about this a little bit. Beth and I are friends. We went on a nice walk together on an early morning now that it is hot. Um, we'll call this an installation of musings of an independent woman. I'm just joking, we're not gonna get super deep. Um, but my name is Pam Bond and I'm fiercely independent. That label was bestowed on me by my father when I was about 20. And at the time I was like, Fuck yeah, I am fiercely independent. But he didn't mean it in a nice way. <laughs> he was actually pretty upset with me. So um, the backstory behind that is I was going through college, but at the same time in the summer, I was trying to earn as much money as I could to help support my way through college, pay for my expenses. And my grandfather, who was fairly um, wealthy, decided he was gonna start taking his grandchildren of a certain age, once we got older, in groups to wherever we wanted to go, anywhere in the world, he'd pay for it. And my sister, myself, and my cousin Sam were the first group to go because we were the oldest. And I was not super interested in this trip because I had to take care of myself. I had to work, I had things to pay for. And so I didn't actually think I was gonna go. And so I was talking with my folks about this and my dad sent me a check for like, $300, you know, fairly insubstantial when you think about it now, but at the time, $300, that was like a week's worth of pay. And said, we really want you to go on this trip. It's a trip of a lifetime. He was gonna take us to Italy and Greece. It'd be the first time I've ever traveled abroad in my life. I sent the check back to my dad. He was not happy. That's when the letter came back about being fiercely independent. A little bit of backstory on this. So I was probably, uh, it was ingrained in me from a very young age to be fiercely independent. My mom and dad had me when my mom was 19. Um, they divorced when I was probably two or three. And for most of my life, I spent it with my mom. Um, my dad was somewhat a part of my life, but not always. And my mom was an alcoholic. And so my sister and I, who's my twin, um, probably the better of the two of us and has kind of a Rolodex of a memory, um, would, would be left alone a lot. Or we would be taken with her and whoever she happened to be with at the time to whatever random part they wanted to hang out in. I didn't know until I was older that you don't take your kids to bars to hang out. That's not, that's not like the most whole, wholesome upbringing you can have. But from a very young age, we spent a lot of time in places we shouldn't be or by ourselves 
or we moved around a lot. And I just kind of got used to the fact that I didn't always have people to rely on other than my sister. I was the kid in the class who, when your, your parents came to talk to your teachers at parent-teacher conference, your teacher would say something like, she's really nice, she's really bright, but she doesn't make any friends. And I decided I didn't want to make any friends because we were just going to leave. It didn't matter. And so that was kind of how I was for most of my younger years. Um, I would only rely on myself. I never asked anybody for anything. And at the time, I guess I would, you know, I've never had therapy. So if there's any therapists out here who want to help me unpack some childhood trauma, <laughs> you can give me your card afterwards. But <laughs> self-diagnosed mommy issues, you know, I just felt like I had to take care of myself. And so I would just close off trying to have relationships with people. And I now consider that to have kind of been my scarlet letter. Um, when, you th when I first started thinking about independence, what does it mean? The word that comes to mind for a lot of people is freedom. But in my case, I felt like my independence was my burden because I was using this to protect myself, but at the same time, I wasn't letting people in. I wasn't asking for help. Um, and it's kind of a, it was kind of a mixed bag. You know, as I got older, in some parts of my life, this was a blessing. I took care of myself. I never asked anybody for anything. I never, I was always financially, you know, able to take care of myself. Um, I didn't want for anything because I always wanted it. But I also had a hard time letting people in. Um, in, my, in my romantic relationships, I dated a lot of guys who were attracted to me because I wasn't like other women. I was independent. I didn't need anybody to take care of me. But it usually ended because I wasn't like other women. I didn't want to, I wasn't going to be the person who's going to take care of you. I'm not going to make you dinner every night. <laughs> I got my own life. I'm with you not because I need you. I'm with you because I want you. And this was sometimes kind of a struggle. Um, professionally, I did really well. I never asked anybody for anything. Me and Google could figure out anything. People think I'm a wizard. There's a term for me at work, it's called Pamo magic because I just figure stuff out. But at the same time, I know, like looking back now, I have lost opportunities to make connections. Connections not just with like people I don't know, but also with my own family. And so as I've gotten older, I'm trying to remind myself <laughs> to not be so fiercely independent, that you really, you know, part of your freedom is being able to connect with other people, get ideas from other people, get feedback, ask people for help. It can be really stressful to just be super independent. So I guess I will leave you saying, you know, independence is a tool in your toolbox, but use it wisely. Bond. Pam Bond. <laughs> I bet James Bond never came up here and told a vulnerable story like that, did he? No way. Thank you so much, Pam. That was such a gift. Thank you for telling that. And as your friend, I will have to say, like, Pam is also one of the most generous people ever. Like, that hiking trip that I went on, um, I, I knew she had an extra garment between, you know, those like, you know, search and rescue devices. And so we met up in Winco and went shopping and she let me use her garment. Only somebody like Pam would do that, you know, send somebody off. So thank you so much for being an awesome friend and for getting up here and being vulnerable. That was really special.
And we have time for one more slammer, but we have no more tickets in the box. So if someone's feeling spontaneous, um, or there's like a story that's like kind of itching in the back of your brain, or you're just like, I just need a little push. I've been thinking about this. I want to do it. I want this show to continue. I want to share. I want to be brave. Like, are you preparing? <laughs> Nobody can talk you into this. Somebody's trying to talk you into this. Just give them the big fuck right off. This is my decision. <laughs> I can see that going on back there. All right, well, do you have any other songs you want to play? Oh, I'll sing. You're, you're going to do it? What's your name? Chris. Love that name. Chris Query. And if you say it real fast, it comes out Quisquewi. <laughs> I've been, I've been introduced that way before. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, this is not going to be polished uh, because it was last minute. But um, you were very inspiring, Pam, Pam Bond. Um, <laughs> so um, I am 60 years old, and I've never been married, and I'm childless by choice. And... <laughs> And I love my life. I absolutely love my life. I give credit to my dad for um, being able to take care of myself and get this far. So when I was growing up, um, my dad, we grew up on a farm, and my dad treated me the same as my brother. Um, so there was no you know, girl stuff. It was everybody helped out. For my 16th birthday, my dad gave me a set of jumper cables. <laughs> um, when I uh, got a flat tire on my car, I got two flat tires. So I went in the house and I said, Dad, um, uh, I have a flat tire. And he's like, all right, come on. So he we went outside and he changed one and then he went in the house. And, and so I changed the second one, and to this day, you know, it has helped me because I know how to change a tire, and it has come up. Um, so 11 years ago, um, my brother got married, and he got married at my house. Um, and I, I am very independent. I, um, I take care of myself. I've, I have, um, I probably have more tools than most people, um, because I, f I feel like if you have to borrow something more than twice, you should own it. And um, so uh, everybody was coming to my house for this wedding, and I had a riding lawnmower because I owned almost three acres, and I had this massive lawn. So I'm on this um, riding lawnmower, and I get this 14,000-square-foot lawn mowed. And my uncle, who was there, said to me, you will never find a man because you don't need anyone. And that was just like, first of all, I couldn't believe he actually said that out loud to me. And secondly, I was like, okay. <laughs> I mean, 
you know, I was, I was raised to take care of myself. And I don't need a man or a woman or a partner in that way. I don't need someone um, because I have tools and I have YouTube videos. Um, oh, um, you know, I, I need someone for emotion, for sharing experiences. And I think it's all how we define need. And for me, again, need is, um, it's more about connection. And I have wonderful friends and wonderful family that provide so much for me. And there does come a time where, you know, something's on too tight and I can't get it off. And I have to call somebody who is stronger than me <laughs> to help me, you know, fix the pipe or whatever. Or, and I don't like crawling under my house. And so I will wuss out and I will have somebody come do that for me. Um, but again, to me, you know, it took me a lot of years to actually come to terms with his comment. Um, but again, like I said in the beginning, I, I absolutely love my life. And I, I, am, uh, I am open to calling people and saying, I need help with this, or can you support me this way? And let's have this connection emotionally. But you're right, I, I don't need someone to help me fix my furnace. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Our theme song was composed by Ned Evett. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Please rate and review this podcast to help other story lovers find it. Thanks to host Beth Norton. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.